Book Thirteen, Part One of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Annals of Publius Cornelius Tacitus, translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrip. Book Thirteen, A.D. Fifty-four to Fifty-eight. Part One: The Funeral of Claudius. The first death under the new emperor, that of Junius Silanus, proconsul of Asia, was, without Nero's knowledge, planned by the treachery of Agrippina. Not that Silanus had provoked destruction by any violence of temper, apathetic as he was, and so utterly despised under former despotisms that Caius Caesar used to call him the golden sheep. The truth was that Agrippina, having contrived the murder of his brother, Lucius Solanus, dreaded his vengeance, for it was the incessant popular talk that preference ought to be given over Nero, who was scarcely out of his boyhood and had gained the empire by crime, to a man of mature age, of blameless life, of noble birth, and, as a point then much regarded, of the line of the Caesars. Solanus, in fact, was the son of a great-grandson of Augustus. This was the cause of his destruction. The agents of the deed were Publius Sila, a Roman knight, and Helius, a freedman, men who had the charge of the emperor's domains in Asia. They gave the proconsul poison at a banquet, too openly to escape discovery. With no less precipitation, Narcissus, Claudius's freeman, whose quarrels with Agrippina I have mentioned, was driven to suicide by his cruel imprisonment and hopeless plight, even against the wishes of Nero, with whose yet concealed vices he was wonderfully in sympathy from his rapacity and extravagance. And now they had proceeded to further murders, but for the opposition of Afranius Burrus and Aeneas Seneca. These two men guided the emperor's youth with a unity of purpose seldom found where authority is shared, and though their accomplishments were wholly different, they had equal influence. Burrus, with his soldiers' discipline and severe manners, Seneca, with lessons of eloquence and a dignified curtsy, strove alike to confine the frailty of the prince's youth, should he loathe virtue, within allowable indulgences. They had both alike to struggle against the domineering spirit of Agrippina, who, inflamed with all the passions of an evil ascendancy, had Pallas on her side, at whose suggestion Claudius had ruined himself by an incestuous marriage and a fatal adoption of a son. Nero's temper, however, was not one to submit to slaves, and Pallas, by a surly arrogance quite beyond a freedman, had provoked disgust. Still, every honour was openly heaped on Agrippina, and to a tribune who, according to military custom, asked the watchword, Nero gave the best of mothers. The Senate also decreed her to lictors with the office of priestess to Claudius, and voted to the late emperor a censor's funeral, which was soon followed by deification. On the day of the funeral the prince pronounced Claudius's panegyric, and while he dwelled on the antiquity of his family and on the consulships and triumphs of his ancestors, there was enthusiasm both in himself and in his audience. The praise of his graceful accomplishments and the remark that during his reign no disaster had befallen Rome from the foreigner were heard with favour. When the speaker passed on to his foresight and wisdom, no one could refrain from laughter, though the speech, which was composed by Seneca, exhibited much elegance, as indeed that famous man had an attractive genius which suited the popular ear of the time. 
elderly man who amused our leisure with comparing the past and the present observed that nero was the first emperor who needed another man's eloquence the dictator caesar rivalled the greatest orators and augustus had an easy and fluent way of speaking such as became a sovereign tiberius too thoroughly understood the art of balancing words and was sometimes forcible in the expression of his thoughts or else intentionally obscure even caius caesar's disordered intellect did not wholly mar his faculty of speech nor did claudius when he spoke with preparation lack elegance nero from early boyhood turned his lively genius in other directions he carved painted sang or practised the management of horses occasionally composing verses which showed that he had the rudiments of learning when he had done with his mimicries of sorrow he entered the senate and having first referred to the authority of the senators and the concurrence of the soldiery he then dwelled on the counsels and examples which he had to guide him in the right administration of empire his boyhood he said had not had the taint of civil wars or domestic feuds and he brought with him no hatreds no sense of wrong no desire of vengeance he then sketched the plan of his future government carefully avoiding anything which had kindled recent odium he would not he said be judge in all cases or by confining the accuser and the accused within the same walls let the power of a few favourites grow dangerously formidable in his house there should be nothing venal nothing open to intrigue his private establishment and the state should be kept entirely distinct the senate should retain its ancient powers italy and the state provinces should plead their causes before the tribunals of the consuls who would give them a hearing from the senators of the armies he would himself take charge especially entrusted to him he was true to his word and several arrangements were made on the senate's authority no one was to receive a fee or a present for pleading a cause the questors elect were not to be under the necessity of exhibiting gladiatorial shows this was opposed by agrippina as a reversal of the legislation of claudius but it was carried by the senators who used to be summoned to the palace in order that she might stand close to a hidden door behind them screened by a curtain which was enough to shut her out of sight but not out of hearing when envoys from armenia were pleading their nation's cause before nero she actually was on the point of mounting the emperor's tribunal and of presiding with him but seneca when every one else was paralyzed with alarm motioned to the prince to go and meet his mother thus by an apparently dutiful act a scandalous scene was prevented with the close of the year came disquieting rumors that the parsians had again broken their bounds and were ravaging armenia from which they had driven radamistus who having often possessed himself of the kingdom and has often been thrust out of it had now relinquished hostilities rome with its love of talking began to ask how a prince of scarce seventeen was to encounter and avert this tremendous peril and how they could fall back on one who was ruled by a woman or whether battles and sieges and the other operations of war could be directed by tutors some on the contrary argued that this was better than it would have been had claudius in his feeble and spiritless old age when he would certainly have yielded to the bidding of slaves been summoned to the hardships of a campaign burrus at least and seneca were known to be men of very varied experience and as for the emperor himself how far was he really short of mature age when cnaeus pompeius and caesar octavianus in their eighteenth and nineteenth years respectively bore the brunt of civil wars 
The highest rank chiefly worked through its prestige and its counsels more than by the sword at hand. The emperor would give a plain proof whether he was advised by good or bad friends by putting aside all jealousy and selecting some eminent general, rather than by promoting out of favoritism a rich man backed up by interest. Amidst this and like popular talk, Nero ordered the young recruits levied in the adjacent provinces to be brought up for the supply of the legions of the east, and the legions themselves to take up a position on the Armenian frontier, while two princes of old standing, Agrippa and Antiochus, were to prepare a force for the invasion of the Parsian territories. The Euphrates, too, was to be spanned by bridges. Lesser Armenia was entrusted to Aristobulus, Sophene to Sohemus, each with the ensigns of royalty. There rose up at this crisis a rival to follow Jesus in his son Vardanus, and the Parthians quitted Armenia, apparently intending to defer hostilities. All this, however, was described with exaggeration to the Senate in the speeches of those members who proposed a public thanksgiving, and that on the days of the thanksgiving the prince should wear the triumphal robe and enter Rome in ovation. Lastly, that he should have statues on the same scale as those of Mars the Avenger, and the same temple. To their habitual flattery was added a real joy at his having appointed Domitius Corbulo to secure Armenia, thus opening, as it seemed, a field to merit. The armies of the east were so divided that half the auxiliaries and two legions were to remain in the province of Syria under its governor, Quadratus Umidius while Corbulo was to have an equal number of citizen and allied troops, together with the auxiliary infantry and cavalry which were in winter quarters in Cappadocia. The confederate kings were instructed to obey orders just as the war might require, but they had a specially strong liking for Corbulo. That general, with a view to the prestige which in a new enterprise is supremely powerful, speedily accomplished his march, and at Aegea, a city of Cilicia, met Quadratus, who had advanced to the place under an apprehension that, should Corbulo once enter Armenia to take command of the army, he would draw all eyes on himself, by his noble stature, his imposing eloquence, and the impression he would make, not only by his wisdom and experience, but also by the mere display of showy attributes. Meantime, both sent messages to King Vologesus, advising him to choose peace rather than war, and to give hostages, and so continue the habitual reverence of his ancestors towards the people of Rome. Vologesus, wishing to prepare for war at an advantage, or to rid himself of suspected rivals under the name of hostages, delivered up some of the noblest of the Arsicids. A centurion, Instius, sent perhaps by Eumedius on some previous occasion, received them after an interview with the king. Corbulo, on knowing this, ordered Arius Verus, commander of a cohort, to go and take the hostages. Hence arose a quarrel between the commander and the centurion, and to stop such a scene before foreigners, the decision of the matter was left to the hostages, and to the envoys who conducted them. They preferred Corbulo, for his recent renown, and from a liking which even enemies felt for him. Then there was a feud between the two generals. Eumidius complained that he was robbed of what his prudence had achieved, while Corbulo, on the other hand, appealed to the fact that Vologesus had not brought himself to offer hostages, till his own appointment to the conduct of the war turned the king's hopes into fears. Nero, to compose their differences, directed the issue of a proclamation that, for the successes of Quadratus and Corbulo, the laurel was to be added to the imperial fasces. 
I have closely connected these events, though they extend into another consulship. The emperor in the same year asked the senate for a statue to his father Domitius, and also that the consular decorations might be conferred on Asconius Labio, who had been his guardian. Statues to himself of solid gold and silver he forbade, in opposition to offers made, and although the senate passed a vote that the year should begin with the month of December, in which he was born, he retained for its commencement the old sacred associations of the 1st of January. Nor would he allow the prosecution of Carina Sila, a senator whom a slave accused, or of Julius Densus, a knight whose partiality for Britannicus was construed into a crime. In the year of his consulship with Lucius Antistius, when the magistrates were swearing obedience to imperial legislation, he forbade his colleague to extend the oath to his own enactments, for which he was warmly praised by the senators, in the hope that his youthful spirit, elated with the glory won by trifles, would follow on to nobler aspirations. Then came an act of mercy to Plautius Lateranus, who had been degraded from his rank for adultery with Messalina, and whom he now restored, assuring them of his clemency in a number of speeches which Seneca, to show the purity of his teaching, or to display his genius, published to the world by the emperor's mouth. Meanwhile the mother's influence was gradually weakened, as Nero fell in love with a freedwoman, Acti by name, and took into his confidence Otho and Claudius Senecio, two young men of fashion, the first of whom was descended from a family of consular rank, while Senecio's father was one of the emperor's freedmen. Without the mother's knowledge, then, in spite of her opposition, they had crept into his favour by debaucheries and equivocal secrets, and even the prince's older friends did not thwart him, for here was a girl who without harm to any one gratified his desires, when he loathed his wife Octavia, high-born as she was, and of approved virtue, either from some fatality or because vice is overpoweringly attractive. It was feared, too, that he might rush into outrages on noble ladies were he debarred from this indulgence. Agrippina, however, raved with a woman's fury about having a freed woman for a rival, a slave-girl for a daughter-in-law, with like expressions. Nor would she wait till her son repented or wearied of his passion. The fouler her reproaches, the more powerfully did they inflame him, till, completely mastered by the strength of his desire, he threw off all respect for his mother, and put himself under the guidance of Seneca, one of whose friends, Aeneas Serenus, had veiled the young prince's intrigue in its beginning by pretending to be in love with the same woman, and had lent his name as the ostensible giver of the presents secretly sent by the emperor to the girl. Then Agrippina, changing her tactics, plied the lad with various blandishments, and even offered the seclusion of her chamber for the concealment of indulgences which youth and the highest rank might claim. She went further, she pleaded guilty to an ill-timed strictness, and handed over to him the abundance of her wealth, which nearly approached the imperial treasures, and, from having been of late extreme in her restraint of her son, became now, on the other hand, lax to excess. The change did not escape Nero. His most intimate friends dreaded it, and begged him to beware of the arts of a woman, who was always daring, and was now false. It happened at this time that the emperor, after inspecting the apparel in which wives and mothers of the imperial house had been seen to glitter, selected a jewelled robe, and sent it as a gift to his mother, with the unsparing liberality of one who was bestowing by preference on her a choice and much-coveted present. 
Agrippina, however, publicly declared that so far from her wardrobe being furnished by these gifts, she was really kept out of the remainder, and that her son was merely dividing with her what he derived wholly from herself. Some there were who put even a worse meaning on her words, and so Nero, furious with those who abetted such arrogance in a woman, removed Pallas from the charge of the business with which he had been entrusted by Claudius, and in which he acted, so to say, as the controller of the throne. The story went that as he was departing with a great retinue of attendants, the emperor rather wittily remarked that Pallas was going to swear himself out of office. Pallas had in truth stipulated that he should not be questioned for anything he had done in the past, and that his accounts with the state were to be considered as balanced. Thereupon, with instant fury, Agrippina rushed into frightful menaces, sparing not the prince's ears her solemn protest, quote, that Britannicus was now of full age, he who was the true and worthy heir of his father's sovereignty, which a son, by mere admission and adoption, was abusing and outrages on his mother. She shrank not from an utter exposure of the wickedness of that ill-starred house, of her own marriage, to begin with, and of her poisonous craft. All that the gods and she herself had taken care of was that her stepson was yet alive. With him she would go to the camp, where on one side should be heard the daughter of Germanicus, on the other the crippled Burrus and the exile Seneca, claiming forsooth with a disfigured hand and a pedant's tongue the government of the world. As she spoke, she raised her hand in menace and heaped insults on him, as she appealed to the deified Claudius, to the infernal shades of the Silani, and to those many fruitless crimes. Nero was confounded at this, and as the day was near on which Britannicus would complete his fourteenth year, he reflected now on the domineering temper of his mother, and now again on the character of the young prince, which a trifling circumstance had lately tested, sufficient, however, to gain for him wide popularity. During the feast of Saturn, amid other pastimes of his playmates, at a game of lot-drawing for king, the lot fell to Nero, upon which he gave all his other companions different orders, and such as would not put them to the blush. But when he told Britannicus to step forward and begin a song, hoping for a laugh at the expense of a boy who knew nothing of sober, much less of riotous society, the lad with perfect coolness commenced some verses which hinted at his expulsion from his father's house and from supreme power. This procured him pity, which was the more conspicuous as night with its merriment had stripped off all disguise. Nero saw the reproach and redoubled his hate. Pressed by Agrippina's menaces, having no charge against his brother and not daring openly to order his murder, he meditated a secret device and directed poison to be prepared through the agency of Julius Pollio, tribune of one of the Praetorian cohorts who had in his custody a woman under sentence for poisoning, Locusta by name, with a vast reputation for crime. That every one about the person of Britannicus should care nothing for right or honour had long ago been provided for. He actually received his first dose of poison from his tutors, and passed it off his bowels, as it was rather weak or so qualified as not at once to prove deadly. But Nero, impatient at such slow progress in crime, threatened the tribune, and ordered the poisoner to execution for prolonging his anxiety, while they were thinking of the popular talk and planning their own defence. Then they promised that death should be as sudden as if it were the hurried work of the dagger, and a rapid poison of previously tested ingredients was prepared close to the emperor's chamber. It was customary for the imperial princes to sit during their meals with other nobles of the same age, in the sight of their kinsfolk, at a table of their own, furnished somewhat frugally. 
There Britannicus was dining, and as what he ate and drank was always tested by the taste of a select attendant, the following device was contrived, that the usage might not be dropped or the crime betrayed by the death of both prince and attendant. A cup as yet harmless, but extremely hot and already tasted, was handed to Britannicus. Then, on his refusing it because of its warmth, poison was poured in with some cold water, and this so penetrated his entire frame that he lost alike voice and breath. There was a stir among the company. Some, taken by surprise, ran hither and thither, while those whose discernment was keener remained motionless, with their eyes fixed on Nero, who, as he still reclined in seeming unconsciousness, said that this was a common occurrence from a periodical epilepsy, with which Britannicus had been afflicted from his earliest infancy, and that his sight and senses would gradually return. As for Agrippina, her terror and confusion, though her countenance struggled to hide it, so visibly appeared that she was clearly just as ignorant as was Octavia, Britannicus's own sister. She saw, in fact, that she was robbed of her only remaining refuge, and that here was a precedent for parasite. Even Octavia, notwithstanding her youthful inexperience, had learned to hide her grief, her affection, and indeed every emotion. And so, after a brief pause, the company resumed its mirth. One and the same night witnessed Britannicus's death and funeral, preparations having been already made for his obsequies, which were on a humble scale. He was, however, buried in the campus marshes, amid storms so violent that in the popular belief they portended the wrath of heaven against a crime which many were even inclined to forgive when they remembered the immemorial feuds of brothers and the impossibility of a divided throne. It is related by several writers of the period that many days before the murder Nero had offered the worst insult to the boyhood of Britannicus, so that his death could no longer seem a premature or dreadful event, though it happened at the sacred board, without even a moment for the embraces of his sisters, hurried on, too, as it was, under the eyes of an enemy, on the sole surviving offspring of the Claudii, the victim first of dishonour, then of poison. The emperor apologised for the hasty funeral by reminding people that it was the practice of our ancestors to withdraw from view any grievously untimely death, and not to dwell on it with panegyrics or display. For himself, he said, that as he had now lost a brother's help, his remaining hopes centred in the state, and all the more tenderness ought to be shown by the senate and people towards a prince who was the only survivor of a family born to the highest greatness. End of Book 13, Part 1